Here's a taste of what's to come on this episode of the Beaver Tales podcast. It was rough for me, and I even thought about transferring. But then I went in, I sat down, and I had two long conversations with Ralph. He said something that was really meaningful to me that really stuck with me for the rest of my life. He said, Steve, I've been coaching 25, 30 years. What I found that it's easier for players to adjust to me than for me to try to adjust to each player. So he said, you will always hear me calling your name unless one or two things happens. One, you're perfect. Or two, I've given up on you. So what that said to me, if he calls my name 100 times in practice, that means I screwed up 100 times, but that he still believes in me. That's just one teaser of what's coming up on the podcast. First, I'd like to mention Convoy of Hope. I'm mentioning this charity because they're one of the premier disaster relief organizations. So whenever a natural disaster, whatever it may be, happens, you know that Convoy of Hope is going to be on the ground providing much-needed resources, and they've got lots of initiatives all over the world in a variety of areas. You can learn more about why Convoy of Hope is such a great place to donate to. Their website is convoyofhope.org, and please check out the show description for a link there. And speaking of this episode of the podcast, let's get right to it. This is the Beaver Tales podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Thanks for joining me for Hall of Fame week. This week on the Beaver Tales podcast, on Monday I had OSU Hall of Famer Charlie Sitton. And since I'm releasing two episodes a week, what better combo to have for this week than a fellow Hall of Famer from the Oregon State men's basketball program and a great era in the late 70s and early 80s, Steve Johnson. Also, what better guy to have for episode 50 of the podcast? Yes, episode 50. Thank you so much to everyone who's listened to anywhere from all 50 of these episodes to just this one. Either way, it means a lot. So the half-century Mark Mann is Oregon Sports Hall of Famer and Oregon State Athletics Hall of Famer Steve Johnson. Steve played for OSU from 1977 to 81. He set an NCAA record for field goal percentage, just under 75% his senior season. He led the conference in scoring at 21 points a pop. He was the Pac-10 Player of the Year that season, a consensus All-American. And today his jersey number 33 is retired at Oregon State. One of the fun anecdotes we discussed in our conversation comes from a photo shoot for a poster of that 1981 team. If you check my Twitter feed on Thursday, I'll post a photo. But basically, this poster was taken right outside Gill Coliseum, a little photo shoot before a practice in 1981 of the Orange Express team. That was the name of this fantastic Oregon State men's basketball team that went to the NCAA tournament for the second straight year. It was ranked number one in the nation, this team, for eight weeks in a row. That was a school record, and Steve Johnson was the star player on that team. Charlie Sitton was a freshman on that team. You can see him in the photo. Ralph Miller is obscured by smoke from a fire extinguisher that shot out too much smoke and basically enveloped Steve Johnson and Ralph Miller. So it's a funny photo. Ray Bloom is in a tuxedo. Mark Radford is actually not in the photo. There's a funny story about why that is, so we'll talk about that. Anyways, as far as Steve Johnson, after OSU, he had a successful NBA career. He was drafted 7th overall in the 1981 NBA draft by the Kansas City Kings, but his best years in the NBA were with the Portland Trailblazers. In the 1987 season, he was averaging 17 points a game and uh, finished after about a decade in the NBA. These days, Steve is the editor-in-chief for Yachting Life 365. That's Yachting Life 365. I'll post a link to the website in the episode description to check out what he's doing. 
it basically it's a platform for content not just for people who own yachts but for people who like the yachting lifestyle and uh, you, you'll learn more from how Steve describes it at the end of our conversation. So let's get to the interview. The first thing we talk about is his up and down career in high school. Only played one year of high school basketball. While Charlie Sitton was the number one recruit in the nation before coming to OSU, his teammate Steve Johnson had almost the opposite story in terms of his career prior to Oregon State. So take a listen to a crazy story of a kid from Southern California who ended up becoming one of the greatest OSU basketball players of all time. Thanks for joining me on the Beaver Tales podcast. We fun to have you and Charlie go back to back. Steve, thanks for coming on. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's start kind of chronologically a little bit. I want to know what it was like recruiting. I asked a similar question of Charlie to start out the conversation. For you in the late 70s, uh, you know, you're playing your high school ball in, in San Bernardino, and there's plenty of good colleges in California that you could go play for. Uh, I know John Wooden would have just finished out at UCLA during your high school career, but what schools kind of reached out to you, and when did Oregon State fit into your story? So, uh, first of all, I, I only played one year of high school basketball, so I wasn't well known. And um, Oregon State found out about me because they were recruiting my teammate. And they were like, who's that 6'10", 180-pound kid slinging hook shots? <laughs> um, I was only recruited by six colleges. Um, University of Idaho, Weber State, Cal State Riverside, um, um, University of Texas, Oregon State, and Cal State Fullerton. And it came down to um, University of Texas and Oregon State. And uh, University of Texas, the year before, had the nation's leading score. And he was coming back. So I'm smart enough to know if I'm not that guy, we're passing to that guy. And uh, Ralph Miller's offense was built around the post. So I chose Oregon State. That's a good choice. Charlie had mentioned, well, you know, when Steve's on the floor, you got to get the ball to Steve. So eventually you became that guy. Um, I'm no dummy. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, only one year of high school basketball. When, when you reflect on that, both what, what caused that and what effects it had, take me back to high school and only playing one year. It's a long story, so I'll just give you the short, the short version. The short version, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, and Seventh-day Adventist, you can't play on a – on Friday nights or Saturdays. And the schools that I went to did not then have organized athletics. So in order for me to go to public school, I literally had to run away from home. So I ran away from home the final time before my senior year. Um, was homeless for a while, living in an abandoned house, and then um, turned myself into juvenile hall, became a ward of the court, and then placed in my cousin's custody, but he didn't live in the district of the school I wanted to go through. So I went back to the abandoned house and uh, lived there. And then after our first game, one of my teammates heard about where I was living and they said, how would you like to come stay with us this year? And I thought, what if I said, well, I don't want to be a bother. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Have you stayed in touch with that family ever since? Um, yeah, and um, um, one of their sons, 
ended up uh, coming up to Oregon State. Uh, well, actually came up uh, and lived with me, and he went to Len Benton. Uh, played played Len Benton, and we were teammates um, at San Gregorio. And um, his uh, two daughters uh, live here in Portland. Wow, amazing! So. <laughs> How was your experience living in Corvallis when you go from your living situation in high school and bouncing around to then, did, did college feel more steady in that way? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean once, once that other family took me in, my, everything was, was stabilized. Um, but then moving to Corvallis from Southern California, um, I just found people very, very uh, friendly. Um, you know, they're all like, howdy. I'm like, why do people keep saying hi to me? I don't know them. Um, but that's just where people were. Um, and so, you know, my freshman year, I uh, ended up uh, rooming with some other teammates. So, you know, once you get up here and you get into the routine of basketball and school, you know, er everything else kind of takes care of itself. Right. What was it like to come and play for Ralph? Uh, I share, you know, we talk about some fun memories with Charlie, the juxtaposition of Ralph and Jimmy Anderson, about as different of coaches as you can get. So what's one of your favorite memories with Ralph? We'll start with his recruiting pitch. So, so Jimmy discovered me, and then they sent Ralph down to close me. And uh, I remember sitting in the back of my coach's classroom and Ralph was looking at my stats, and he had eggs Benedict on his face. And uh, he's reading my stats, and then he says, um, we're recruiting six big men. Uh, you're one of them. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this guy wants me bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I was already, so I, I, I was already sold on his system because I knew it was built around the post player. So um, I knew I wanted, I wanted to come here. And then, but then, um, after my first year, you know, Ralph's personality is not the warm, fuzzy type of personality. Mm -hmm. And you go from your high school coach, where I was close to my high school coach, and still to this day, I still talk to him, um, where your buddies were with Ralph. Ralph tell you, I'm not your buddy. And it was rough for me adjusting to that. And I even thought about transferring. And I talked to my high school coach, I thought, I thought about transferring. But then I went in, I sat down, and I had two long conversations with Ralph. And the last one, he said something that was really meaningful to me that really stuck with me for the rest of my life. He said, Steve, I've been coaching 25, 30 years. And he says, what I found that it's easier for players to adjust to me than for me to try to adjust to each player. Hmm. So he said, you will always hear me calling your name unless one or two things happens. He says, one, you're perfect. Or two, I've given up on you. So what that said to me, if he calls my name 100 times in practice, that means I screwed up 100 times, but that he still believes in me. Mm. And so I can honestly say with him, even though he wasn't Mr. Personality, his belief and faith in me meant a lot. And it put it back on my shoulders to keep uh, improving. And he wasn't a coach that he was, that was your buddy one day. And the next day, he wasn't your buddy. Okay? He was just a dog all the time. But you knew that at the end of the day, he had your best interest at heart, and all he wanted out of you was your very best. 
That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it shows he's going to ride you, but that it's because he, he wants what's best for you, wants you to improve, and he, he hasn't given up on you. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Last question kind of on the – well, we'll talk a little bit more about Oregon State, but just to kind of touch on the difference of your, you know, just background in and outside of basketball from, from your high school days to college is if you had some instability partway through high school and then going to college, did basketball serve as – your release of sorts a sort of thing that held you down or how did that fit in for you or was it something else maybe not basketball maybe that wasn't what it was or how did that fit into your growth as a person when not everything else was going super smoothly I mean my senior year got I got I got settled down with with that family and then when you're playing basketball during the season you know you got to get up and your classes are compressed in the morning because you got work out in the afternoon so you get up early and you got to go to class, and then you got to go to practice. And then when the season starts, you've got the games, you got the preparation for that. So your world is pretty structured um, around classes and, and, and practice. Um, it's not a, it wasn't a hard um, adjustment to me, uh, Morgan State, uh, because, you know, when you're an athlete, everybody likes you and as long as you're a good guy. Um, and you're performing. So the whole experience on campus was, it was fun. It was easy. The stress of playing, that'll always be there. But as far as my time on campus, you know, I met my wife my freshman year. So college was like child's play. <laughs> How did you meet your wife? So I met her my freshman year and uh, she lived across the hallway from my girlfriend. <laughs> no kidding. And, uh, and I, I, I would see her in the, uh, in the dorms. Um, I would see her in the, uh, the TV room watching soap operas. So I started watching soap operas, all my children. And, um, and that's, how I, that's how I met her and kind of weaseled my way in. <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. How did, how did, if, I, if I may ask, how did it go with your girlfriend? Um. Not too well. Okay. <laughs> she dropped out of school. Gotcha. Okay. Well, worked out. Yeah, I overachieved. I, I definitely overachieved. And maybe all our children was a good thing to bond over because that show lasted, or maybe it's still on. I don't even know. But that, that, was a, that lasted for a long time. Yeah. Well, when, when Luke and Laura left the planet and saved the world, that's when I stopped watching. <laughs> kind of jumped the shark at some point, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's another, as we talk about kind of Oregon state memories, um, there, my friend showed me, he, he was a photographer and did this poster. I don't know if this will bring back memories, but it, you obviously had the orange express team in 81. And there is a photo outside of Gill that you took right before a practice where you got the orange train. And I'm kind of surprised Ralph being the kind of hard coach he was, was willing to come out and do the photo shoot in front of the train with the fire extinguishers and the smoke in front. And you see Charlie sitting in the back and you're in the front. Do you remember that photo? That photo yeah, shoot? I remember the photo. And I think, I don't even, I think Mark Radford was missing from that photo. Is yes. Mark in the photo? He, he slept in and missed yeah, the photo shoot. Yeah. Which, which was typical Mark. He was always late. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, um, we had you know, our, our junior year, we had a really good year. And then the senior year, it was just keep the train rolling. And yeah, so that was a that was a fun photo shoot. Yeah. Who, who were the guys that you 
connected with most. You had a lot of good teammates. I mean, Charlie, you overlap with just for a year, but there are some tremendous players that you overlap with, whether it be for two, three, four years. Who are the guys that you connected with, made some bonds with that lasted for a long time? Well, you made bonds with, with all of them. On the court, there was a period where there was conflict. I tell this story. There was a conflict between me and Ray. Ray, at the time, did not, he didn't like all the pub that I was getting, and we didn't get along. So I called him up one day, and we got together, and I said, look, I said, you may not like me, and I may not like you. I said, but if we're going to reach our goal, you and I have to, we have to get along. We have to work together. And I told him, I said, look, I can't help it if they write about my scoring. I said, I know you, Mark, and Lester Connors is what makes us go. Those guys that are full court press, those guys, just the pressure they put on throughout the game, I'm the safety valve back there if they crack it. And then we come down court, I'm the first option. But I, I said, I know you guys are really what make us, make us go. And so after that meeting, it changed our, the dynamics of our relationship. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're great friends to this day. Probably the guy that uh, I liked being on the floor the most um, was a backup player by the name of uh, Jeff Stout. Uh, he was a shooter, but Jeff could feed me the ball better than anybody else because Jeff knew how to how to make eye contact with me without telegraphing that he's going to pass it in to me. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just kind of look and they kind of put the ball over their head and they look at you. They tell everybody. Jeff and I would just make kite eye contact. He'd take another dribble and then throw it off the dribble real quick. So so Jeff was my favorite player on the court for passing, but you know we had you know with 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 Charlie and Mark and Ray and and um, um, Lester Connors, you know, we just had a really good starting five and good role players. So it was just a good team. But they had a lot of good t- uh, chemistry. When it comes to post entry passes, I was a subpar five eleven guard, so I made my share of entry passes that got picked off by the guy guarding me. But when it comes to you're playing the post, and let's say you're you know backing down a guy and you you've posted him up. I'm guessing the nice post-entry pass is a work of art that doesn't really get appreciated by fans, but actually is hugely impactful for teams like Oregon State. Well, there's actually two important pieces, and this is, once again, where Ralph Miller came in. So when I first got to Oregon State, what happens when you're in the post, guys are down there, they're really active, you know, calling for the ball, and they're moving around and jumping. And, you know, Ralph would coach from the, from the stands, and then one day he just jumped up and he's like whistling and he's like, stop, stop. You know, he said, he said, Steve, what are you doing? You down there trying to dance a jig? He says, put your big ass down there. Let the defense tell you how he wants to play you. Lock him into that and let us get you the ball. <laughs> so from that period forward, because I'm a very analytical person when it came to the game, I said, okay, so where on the court is my primary move the most effective and, and my secondary move? And I figured out it was the second hash mark on the right side. And then I had a rule that I would always face the basket until the ball got swung and before, so they were ready to pass it in. I would never turn around and show my back and start posting up because he made me get into a, a wrestling match. Mm-hmm. And because we had such a great passing team, I could anticipate when the reversal was, 
and we swung the ball. We did not dribble. So I knew when the ball was going to get to the guy to pass it in, and it wasn't until it got there was when I would step in and turn around and post up and seal the guy. So, so that and then the way our offense was, I just learned how to set the guys up and then create really big passing lanes for the player. But it only worked because we had such a great passing team. A quick interruption on this episode to let you know about a special project I think you'll enjoy, the Beaver Tales documentaries, including exclusive audio interviews, narration, and retelling what made the 2018 Beaver baseball postseason so special. Every single game, Oregon State would play in Omaha. Two or three really weird things that maybe I'd never seen before would always happen. When he hit the home run, out of my coaching career, that's without a doubt the most exciting thing I've ever been a part of. This audio documentary series will come out in a few months. To subscribe, there's a link in this episode's description. Check out the website and put your email down there so you can be one of the first people to listen to the Beaver Tales documentaries. All right, back to this episode. Let's talk a little bit about post-OSU and then kind of wrap up with what you're doing now and and talk about your work these days. Uh, Just a, a note or two on your pro career the draft is a lot different now than it was then. There's no ESPN coverage and, and all that sort of stuff going on. So what do you remember of draft day 1981 and getting selected by the Kansas City Kings seventh overall? So um, I knew I was going to be in the top 10. And so they flew us back to New York. And um, I remember when they called my name and they said the Kansas City Kings, it was kind of like a nondescript, like Kansas City. I mean. What is that? You know, that, that? That was my feeling. Then I said, then I was like, oh, well, I'm in the NBA now. So it was a big, I mean, it was a big event. I don't know if it was televised or not. We recorded, um, but it was, it was, you know, a nice big production. And like I said, they knew who the top players were going to be. So they flew us back there. As far as your pro career, would you say that your best years were right back home in the Beaver State in Portland? Or when you look back at your career, what, what were your favorite couple of years in your career? So there was a narrow, with Portland, I was here three years, but there was a narrow window of about a year and a half. And then my health issues in, far, in, in, in terms of my ankles, you know, about halfway through my career, I started developing bone spurs. Um, in both ankles. And so that went with me the rest of my career. So when I got to Portland, um, I just come out from Chicago and I had a coach in Chicago who had really worked with me on my game, both from a mental standpoint. And he said, you're, you're really a power forward, not a center. So he worked with me on that. But in Chicago, our center was a guy by the name of Dave Corzine, who was not a post-up player. And so people still put their centers on me in Chicago. So when I got to Portland, I was excited about being able to play the power forward because we had Sam Bowie, who was a high post passing center. We had Clyde and Kiki and Terry outside shooting. Um, So I'm like, I got the low post to myself and, you know, it was just a great, I was so excited about it. But then Sam broke his leg. And then I remember sitting on the bench thinking, okay, dang, we got to find a center, you know, who's going to play center. And I was like, Dang. So I got moved back over to center and I pouted for a couple of a couple of weeks and did not play that well. But then I, I finally went back. I went to the coach. I said, coach, I don't think I'm a center, but I can do a, a much better job than I'm doing. And I'll give you 110 percent. So I want to have my best year. 
and then started out the same way next year, that following year, and I got selected to the all-star team. But my injuries caught up with me. My bone spurs caught up with me again. So, yeah, so Portland was a highlight. Um, I had highlights in, in, in Chicago also. And then uh, my one year at San Antonio, there were, there were other highlights, but being able to come back home to Portland and performing well in Portland, yeah, that was, that was fun. That's awesome. That's great to see what you're able to do in Oregon, both collegiately and professionally. Uh, let's wrap up just with what you're doing now. I, I got to tour your website a little bit. It looks like some really cool stuff that, you know, the articles, the the content you've created, the travel stuff, the luxury homes, luxury cars. T- tell me kind of the what Yachting Lifestyle 365 is all about and the model of what you're working with. So for people that are old, they remember the lifestyle of the the rich and famous. And what Yachty Lifestyle 365, what we write about is the owner's life. The owner, someone that owns a yacht. So we say, if they're not on their yacht, where are they? So we have 118 destination guides uh, around the world. And so we have yachting destinations, and then we have communities where the yacht owners would own um, a home. And then, all the rest of our content, whether it's the cars, the clothes, um, homes, aviation, we write articles around the destinations. So we have destination guides. It's about where to go, where to stay. We have hotel guides, restaurant guides, uh, fashion guides about what to pack, aviation articles about how to get there, act, you know, events like the Monaco Grand Prix and you know, all these the, the, the different. So the website is all about how to live the yachting lifestyle 365 days out of the year. So you're not, you might not be able to own a yacht or charter a yacht, but you can go where the yachts go. You can wear that watch, take a picture at your favorite at the restaurant we recommend, and you're like living the lifestyle. Then we have a digital marketing agency that represents the, the businesses who deliver those premium products and services that we write about on the Yachting Lifestyle 365 curated website. So I got both curated content and then we have the digital marketing side. Gotcha. So again, yachtinglifestyle365.com. I'll I'll put a link in the description for this episode so people can check out that website and see what you got on there. Was there a moment maybe when you were a kid or in college where you thought, man, I, I love I would love to own a yacht or be be in that lifestyle or when did that kind of click for you to to you know work at a bit you know work in this sort of industry another long story but the short story it started in 2008 and it started out as a hobby in a virtual world where I was designing 3d model yachts and I built one based upon Christensen yachts which was right across the river from from us and somebody who knew someone in marketing at Christensen said how would you like to go for a tour and I was like, yeah. So I went over there, wasn't prepared to walk inside this building and see 560-foot mega yachts under construction. Met the president. We became good friends. And um, once I got on board one of their yachts, I said, I got to figure out how to become part of this world. So it was just a progression from there. Prior to that, I knew nothing about yachts, nothing about boats, nothing about the Internet. I was just like, I got to figure out how to become part of this world. <laughs> That's great. 
uh, I like to usually close these conversations with a topic on just you know, life lessons and, and how you've developed to be a different person than you were in college, things that you've grown in, whether it be something that you learned from a coach or playing sports at Oregon State or just a way that you've matured since leaving Oregon State. So if you were to you know, talk to the 18-year-old version of Steve Johnson and give him some advice, tell him something about what to prepare for or what you've learned. Does anything come to mind that's been especially critical for you to develop a, a healthy lifestyle, a successful way of life these days that, that you uh, would tell yourself back then? Well, when I was in high school, I, when I developed my, my personal vision of becoming a professional athlete and then I set goals to achieve that. And so because I knew where I wanted, wanted to get to and I wanted it so bad that everything, every obstacle, whatever was put in front of me, I had to figure out how to get over that because I had to keep pursuing my dream. And so what I would tell young people is you need to figure out what your inspiring personal vision is for your life. And like me, once you get that vision, and if you're confident enough to share that vision with people, people will hear it and they'll get behind you. And that, at that point, it has no choice but to pull for its own fulfillment. So don't focus on all the problems. Figure out what your inspiring vision for your life is. And there are plenty of people out there that would love your vision. Yeah. Let's just close with a fun question on, on Oregon State. In your days, the NCAA tournament was somewhat common. You made it a couple times and the, the 80s had some good years there. And then after 1990, there was essentially a drought until 2016. I remember seeing you at at least one game a few years ago, I think, but I'm not sure how much you followed the Oregon State program. But do you remember finally seeing Oregon State get back to the tournament? How much have you kept up with Oregon State and remember them coming back? Well, it's been painful over the years, and, um, you know, we're still hoping that we get back up on top. You know, Coach Tinkle, I think, has done a good job. There's obviously still more work to do. So it's been, it's been a long drought, and it's been a long drought for a lot of us. And now I fall into the classification of a geezer. You know, you know you're a geezer when they talk about the great team of 1981 and you have to limp out the stands, okay? So I'm ready for us to get back on top. So we just keep hope alive. I like to hear that. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for your time reminiscing about some fun memories. It's real fun to connect with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Okay, my pleasure. What an honor it was to chat with Steve Johnson and Charlie Sitton, both on this week's podcast episodes. You can check out Charlie's. It was on Monday, right on the Beaver Tales podcast as well. Again, in the episode description for this podcast episode, you can both check out Yachting Lifestyle 365 and see what uh, Steve Johnson is up to, the platform that he's the editor-in-chief for. And then also in that same description, there's another link for the Beaver Tales documentaries. Click on that link, leave your email there, and subscribe for that project. It's coming out really well uh, partway through finishing that up, and it'll come out later this year. Some great moments from Oregon State basketball history to reflect on. Got some more 
more fun moments from other Oregon State sports coming up. I'll get my first Olympian on soon, as well as a football player with one of the more interesting career arcs in Oregon State football history, at least recently in my opinion. So some fun episodes coming up that uh, you'll find out about pretty soon and a big baseball guest as well that you'll definitely enjoy. All right, that wraps it up for today's episode of the Beaver Tales podcast. I've been your host, Josh Warden. Until next time, good night and go Beavs.